take your scriptures and open them to Matthew chapter 16. As you turn there, uh, I don't know if Joan Terry is watching on the live stream, but uh, she emailed me this morning and asked me to uh, let you all know and so that we can be celebrating with them that today is the, their 67th wedding anniversary. So, Joan, praise God. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 16. The late theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer was raised in a non-Christian home. After he became a Christian, his father didn't want him to go to college, uh, nor did he want him to become a minister, and that's, that's the calling that, that Schaeffer was feeling on his life at that time. When the moment finally came where he had to make a decision to go, go or submit to his father's wishes, Francis Schaeffer asked in a strained voice, he writes, Pop, give me a few minutes to go downstairs into the cellar and pray. In fear and uncertainty, he went down into the cellar and, and wept. Then in an act of desperation, he says, and in simple faith, he did something that he never advises anybody to do. He took out a coin and he said, heads, I'll go in spite of God's desires. And he flipped it and it was heads. Still weeping, he cried out, God, be patient with me. If it's tails this time, I'll go. And he flipped it, and it was tails. The third time he pleaded, once more, God, I don't want to make a mistake with my dad upstairs. Please, if it's heads, I'll go. And he flipped it, and it was heads. So he went upstairs and told his dad he was going to college. His dad looked hard at him and then turned around and before slamming the door and leaving, his dad said, I'll pay for half of the first semester and slammed the door and left. Have you ever done anything like that? Honestly? Either physically or or maybe even mentally? Have you ever put God on the spot like that? Have you ever stood figuratively, of course, with your hands on your hips, giving God an ultimatum? Well, that's exactly what we see in the text today. And what we'll learn from this is that what Francis did and what maybe some of us do is probably Not a good idea. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, oh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I was not speaking about bread? Beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Heavenly Father, we love your word. And we want to feed on it richly today. Prepare our hearts to do that. Prepare our minds. Make our minds eager. Help us be sitting on the edge of the pew, waiting for what you will have for us today. Challenge us and encourage us. Through your Spirit's power, amen. The main point of this passage is found in verses 6 and 12. You can look there and see the main point. It's a warning. Jesus said it twice. Beware, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven, or yeast as we call it, is used in the Bible as a symbol of, of, in many different ways. Uh, It's used as a symbol of haste in the Passover the bread is not to be used, yeast is not to be used in the baking of the Passover bread to show the haste with which they left Egypt. It's used as a, a, a form of spiritual progression. We saw that back in Matthew 13, where he talks, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like leaven, is like yeast, that, that is going to come and it's going to slowly go across the whole world. But yeast and leaven is also used as a powerful symbol of sin in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses this when he's talking to the Corinthian church about that man who's having an affair with his, with his father's wife. And he says, you know, get that guy out of there. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's saying, listen, sin is contagious. It is viral. It tends to metastasize. And Jesus warns his disciples in this same way here with the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, watch out what you listen to. Watch out what you listen to. Because it works its way in. Kids, have you ever, ever wondered why your parents say you can't watch that show? Have you ever wondered that? They're actually putting this principle into effect in your own home. They realize, maybe you don't, but they realize that what you watch, what you listen to, works its way into your heart and mind. And they're protecting you. 
And in the same way, Jesus is trying to protect his disciples, us, in the same way. So Jesus here says, beware the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees so that you don't begin to consciously or in many, time, many ways unconsciously start emulating them. And their sin is all wrapped up in that one demand for a sign. That's where the sin is, is wrapped up, in their demand for a sign. So here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus. This is really an unusual pairing. Uh, they, they, they've, not, they've never been together before in the Gospel of, of Matthew. It would be like, like a legalistic, fundamentalist Baptist joining forces with a UCC minister. It would be like, like them coming together and doing something together. I mean, it would be, it's un, unusual, unheard of. The Pharisees eschewed politics. The Sadducees were very political, even, even in compliance and in complicity with the Roman government. The Pharisees held a very high view of Scripture, so high that they actually added rules and regulations to it to protect it. They had a very high view of Scripture. The Sadducees, a very low view of Scripture. They only believed that the first five books written by Moses were inspired. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. Angels, immortality, resurrection... These two groups did not work together very well, if ever. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what's happening here. Jesus was becoming more and more of a threat to their influence over the people, over their power base. And so they joined, joined forces to go and, and confront Jesus and out him and test him. Look with me at verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, it says there, came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we know this is sinful because of verse 4, right? Verse 4 tells us, Jesus' response, a wicked and sinful generation asks for a sign. This is not a good thing they're doing. Because embedded in their demand for a sign are at least three sinful motives that we have to avoid. Three sinful leavens, if you will, that we have to be aware of, watch and beware of ourselves. And the first is really very apparent. It's the leaven of testing God. We have to watch out for this leaven of testing God in our own lives, in our own hearts. The text is very clear here. Verse 1, they came to test him. They were not coming sincerely asking this question. They wanted to test him. The scriptures throughout are very, very clear about testing God from the very beginning. Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as they did at Mirabah. 
Jesus quotes this very verse in Deuteronomy when he is in, in the desert and being tested by Satan in that second test when Satan takes him to the top of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off. And he quotes scripture for the angels will, will catch you. And Jesus quotes here, he says, you shall not test the Lord your God. In fact, the same word used in Matthew 4 in that temptation narrative is the same word used here in verse 1 for testing. Thereby showing us that the the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees were in alliance with that of Satan's. Now, the sin of testing God is varied in Scripture. You just can't say, here's how you test God. It, it, actually, this sin is, is different in different situations. The Scripture says we test God when we continue to knowingly sin. We're testing God. We're putting pressure, if you will, demand on His mercy. It's exactly the accusation that Paul brings to the whole Jewish community when he's writing his letter to the Romans in chapter 2. As the Jews say, well, the Gentiles are sinning, but we have God. And he says, no, 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 no. Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance. Be careful, you're testing God. So we can test God by continuing to sin. We can also test God when we neglect the ordinary means of preservation. In 2006, in St. Petersburg, the Times wrote there that the death of a Ukrainian man in the Kiev Zoo. The zoo official said the man lowered himself down by a rope into the concrete enclosure that held four lions. The man took off his shoes and walked towards the lion saying, if God is real, he will save me. I mean, one of the lionesses came, knocked him down with one blow and severed his carotid artery immediately. We cannot assume God will protect us from easily avoidable dangers. That's testing God. Thirdly, we can test God when we demand the time, place, and manner of his help. Have you ever done that? I think that's, that's the sin that Francis Schaeffer was doing and then counseled others to avoid. That's the sin that, that we do, some, some of us, in our hearts. And finally, we test God when we demand God prove himself to us. And that's the kind of testing that's going on here. That's the leaven that Jesus is warning us to, to avoid here of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The type of testing that's born out of a heart of disbelief and distrust. We see this type of testing going on in the book of, of uh, Judges, don't we? With Gideon. God tells him, you will be the rescuer of God's people. And what does Gideon do? Do you remember? He says, okay, but just, he doesn't say this, but this is what he's doing and saying. Just prove yourself to me. Prove what you say is true. I'll put down a fleece overnight. And if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, I'll know it's true. Does it? God does that. He says, forgive me. It sounds a lot like Francis Schaeffer, doesn't it? Forgive me 
tonight I'll put down another fleece, and if the fleece is wet and the ground is, is dry, then I'll know what you said is true. And God does that. God is incredibly merciful to Gideon. Merciful to Francis Schaeffer. Merciful to us. Now, if you use fleeces in your life, spiritual life, I want to encourage you to stop. I want to encourage you to stop. I want you to think for a second where we're getting that. From the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a tale of unfaithfulness. I mean, the the bookends of that book are everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The whole book of Judges is a cautionary tale of unfaithfulness. And Gideon, Gideon is testing God, asking him to prove himself. And that is the sin that we see here. That's the sin that Gideon needs to repent of. And that's the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's the the leaven that we have to watch out that we don't fall into. I was thinking this week of what this would look like. It would be like if we dug up an earthworm and it raised up and somehow spoke to us and said, prove that you are more powerful and wise than I am. Think of the disparity there. Think of the hubris there. Prove yourself to me, God. That yeast is very dangerous. We have to watch and beware of that. Second leaven that the Pharisees and Sadducees say that we need to watch out for and beware of is hypocrisy. The leaven of hypocrisy. On July 8th, 2019, the Bangor Daily News reported that Rosie Ruiz had died at the age of 66. Rosie Ruiz. Does that ring a bell for anybody? A couple people. Rosie came to fame 41 years ago in 1980 when she was the first woman to cross the finish line at the 84th running of the Boston Marathon. She had run, ran the last few hundred yards to cheering and applauding crowds. A wreath was placed on her head. Celebrations ensued. What was so impressive about her win was that it broke the record at the time. She ran it in two hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. Another thing that was so amazing about her feat was that she was completely unknown in the running world. Never heard of before, and yet wins the Boston Marathon. Yet someone noticed that her legs didn't look like runner's legs. And, and that she wasn't breathing very hard at the end. And, and that her... Her hair was actually in place. Questions began to be asked. And eight days later, it was found out that she had started the race and then hopped on the Boston subway and and rode 16 miles to close to the end and then came out of the crowd 
and finish the race. Rosie appeared to be that elite, long-distance runner, but she was far from it. She was, among other things, a hypocrite. That is the leaven that Jesus is telling his disciples to watch and beware of. Webster's Dictionary defines hypocrisy as to a feigning to be what one is not or believe what one does not, a behavior that contradicts your words. And the Pharisees and Sadducees come asking Jesus for a sign, yet they're not really interested in seeing another sign, are they? They're not interested in the least. They had already decided to kill him earlier in Matthew. So Jesus answers them by saying, When it's evening, you say, It'll be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be stormy today because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I hear some frustration, holy frustration, in Jesus' voice. Because that was their job. Their job was to interpret the signs for the Messiah. That was what the Pharisees were to do. They were, look, they were to be looking for a prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. They were to be looking for this prophet to come from a certain geographical region, Micah 5.2. They were to be looking for a, a man who would come and teach in parables, Psalm 78. They were to look and interpret a worker of miracles, Isaiah 35. And that's what Jesus had been all doing for two solid years. And they knew this. The Pharisees and Sadducees had heard and even seen these signs multiple, multiple times. Yet they asked for a sign again. Why? Because they're not seeking evidence that will convince them of the truth, but a reason to deny the truth. They're looking for a reason to deny the truth. And that's hypocrisy. Their question wasn't honest. It came from a hardened heart of disbelief. Their hearts were dark. John MacArthur writes, If a person's heart is set on darkness, when light comes in, he will curse it. Isn't that true? French atheist Voltaire stated, Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before thousands of sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit that miracle. That's the Sadducees. So when they come asking for a sign, they're showing their hypocrisy. Outwardly asking for proof, but inwardly already denying it. I was talking to Pastor Wes Pastor, who was here the last four days. As you know, he disciples future pastors here in New England. And we were talking about how he does that. And he's all, he says he's always trying to discern hearts. He's just trying to discern hearts. It's all about the heart, the heart. 
So he says he listens carefully for the tone of the young men's questions. He, uh, he says, I listen to see if it's an honest inquiry or an accusation. And so the tone, something, a tone would sound like, why did you say that? Versus, why did you say that? Or, why did you do that? Tell me. I want to know. I want to learn. Or, why did you do that? Or, why, why do you believe that theology? Help me. Or, why do you believe that theology? Many times, minds are already made up. And the question really isn't a question at all. That's the hypocritical yeast of the Pharisees. And we need to watch and beware of that yeast in its various forms in our lives. Because it's there. One of the most common and insidious of these is the hypocrisy of external religion. The hypocrisy of external religion. Of looking good as a Christian. Yet, living with yourself. Making sure that people think well of you. Doing certain things. Saying certain things. Behaving a certain way. John Bunyan wrote, Religion is the best armor a man can have, but the worst cloak. Isn't that great? We have to watch and beware that we do not start wearing that cloak. That we are not in some way, shape, and form these whitewashed tombs that, that Jesus talks about. Looking good on the outside, but none of the reality of a living Christ on the inside. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the toughest things to identify. It is actually one of the toughest hypocrisies to identify in ourselves. First, because we fool ourselves. We actually do. We start fooling ourselves. That's what Matthew 25's teaching of the sheep and goats, you know? And they come to him and they say, we did all these things in your name. And he says, go away, I never knew you. Those people had fooled themselves into thinking because they were wearing religion as a cloak. Secondly, it's tough to ID because our natural tendency is to affirm the outside. That's our natural tendency. We affirm what we see. Steve Brown in the magazine Key Life wrote, Jesus didn't condemn bad people, he condemned stiff people. We, on the other hand, condemn the bad ones and affirm the stiff ones. We affirm people who are clean on the outside. Like the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked great. So how do we watch for this type of tricky leaven in our own lives? I want to suggest to you three things. First, pray, 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 pray. Pray to the Holy Spirit that he will begin to show you the pockets of hypocrisy in your own life. And they are there. Jesus says, I'll send 
the Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will start convicting you of the areas where you're wearing your religion like a cloak. He will. Secondly, admit you're a train wreck. Admit you're a train wreck. 1 Timothy 1, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, here is a trustworthy saying that is true. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He's admitting he's a train wreck. I'm a train wreck. A good friend of mine used to tell me years ago, and he used to say this kind of jokingly, but but also half seriously, and it kind of worked its way in. He used to look at me and go, Blake, you're a mess. And it's true. Third, the next step, and finally, is perhaps the hardest, perhaps the hardest step, and that is allow people to peer over the wall and into your life. That's the hardest one, I think. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we would stir each other up towards love and good works. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Proverbs 27.17, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I could go on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, we must allow people into the deeper recesses of our lives. We have to do that. Steve Green wrote, Accountability to me is unnatural. I think we can all start nodding on that. Accountability to me is unnatural. My tendency is to only let you in enough to let you in to know enough about me to give you a good impression. We all are recovering hypocrites at some level. The spiritual trick is to not allow hypocrisy too much room to grow. That's why we talk a lot around here about openness and transparency and weakness and Jeremiah 17.9 type of, of the deceptiveness of our own hearts. There are various biblical ways to allow people to peer over that wall. Here at, at, at our church... I want to encourage you in four ways. First and probably least intimidating is to come to adult Sunday school. We actually practice this at adult Sunday school in a greater context. Secondly, join a discovery group. They're going to be starting up. This is our small group ministry. It's going to be starting up in October. That's a, that's a great way to allow people to peer into your life a little bit. Thirdly, join one of the men's or women's discipleship groups. Ours is starting, the men's is starting back up on September 8th. The women's is when? September 16th. Join that group. Allow other men and women to peer over the wall. Allow them deeper access into your life. So that you don't fool yourself. And fourthly, think about asking somebody to disciple you. Think about asking somebody, will you please spend time with me and, and look at my life as I open it up and give me honest feedback about who I am spiritually. There's a great book in the back that How Do I Find Someone to Disciple Me. If you've never asked somebody, pick up that little booklet, read it, it's short, and ask somebody to peer over the wall into your life. 
The point is, each Christian needs to allow a brother or sister to do that. It's not natural for any of us. But we must do it because at least one of those, at least one of those are not present in your life. At least one of those four things I just listed are not present in your life. There's a danger of hypocrisy to grow in your life. Not saying it will, but there's a danger there. The third leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is disregard. We're meant to see this by way of contrast. Here in verse 1, they demand a sign on the very heels, if you just look back in the chapters, on the very heels of the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000. On the very heels of him walking on water and calming the storm. James Boyce writes, it took a great deal of faith to ask for a sign from Jesus after he'd already given so many. Pharisees and Sadducees totally disregard his signs. And this yeast spreads to his disciples too in verses 5 through 12. Jesus warns them of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and they think, oh, we forgot bread. He's asking us, what, where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? And they disregard the signs of the loaves and fishes altogether. And this is a yeast that we too have to diligently watch for and beware of in our own life. This yeast of disregard. Mark Ross writes, Believers can be corrupted by the yeast of the Pharisees by forgetting what the Lord has done for us and thus can do for us. Are you aware of the work of God in your life right now? Do you have somebody asking you periodically, what's the Lord doing in your life? How's he working in your life? How's he changing you? How's he, how's he convicting you of sin? How's he bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Give me examples of that. Are you aware of what God is doing in your life right now? Or do you totally just disregard that? Just, go, just, just going on in life. That's the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul realized this, and that's why he wrote that prayer that we all read together today from Ephesians. He wanted the Ephesian church to not fall prey to this yeast of disregard, of, of totally blowing off what, what the Lord is doing. So he prayed that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you are called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable great power of us who believe. He prayed for three specific remedies for this yeast. First, know the hope that you have. Do you know the hope that you have? The certainty of your salvation in Jesus Christ. The certainty that you are going to be with Christ in eternity. The certainty that he will complete a work that he started in you. Philippians 1.6 Scotty Smith wrote, Those most alive in this hope will live most joyfully in the mission God has sent them in. Secondly, Ephesians, in Ephesians he says, Never forget 
You, you are God's inheritance. Never forget, you are God's inheritance. Listen again, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The New Living Translation puts it like this. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Brothers and sisters, you are God's treasure. You are God's delight. Never forget that. We're looking forward to our inheritance there, which is God, but he's looking forward to his inheritance in us. That's a beautiful thing. And thirdly, finally, don't forget the power we have through the Holy Spirit within us. That great promise, that great seal of our salvation is also a power that gives us the ability to live, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And yes to godliness. Paul compares that power that we have to do this with the power the Father exerted in the resurrection. And that resurrection is the sign that Jesus leaves with the Pharisees and Sadducees. The one and only sign that convinces. Jesus tells them, no sign will be given to you. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Jesus told them this once before back in chapter 12 of Matthew. There the scribes and Pharisees had come to him again to to demand a sign from him. And he explained that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. And then rise. We don't know exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees made of that. Probably not too much, but we certainly understand that. We understand it as being all about his resurrection. All the other signs Jesus pointed to who he is. All the other signs, all the other signs pointed to who Jesus is. But the resurrection points to what he has done. All the other signs don't save. The sign of Jonah saves. All the other signs are important, but the resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. Do you know what a linchpin is? On a wagon years ago, they had put a wagon wheel on the axle and there was a little hole in the axle and they'd put a little pin to hold the wheel on. If the pin came out, the wheel came off and the wagon was useless. If the resurrection did not happen... The gospel is useless. The gospel is of no power at all. The resurrection holds the gospel together. His perfectly lived life would mean nothing without the resurrection. It would just be another good example of a person living a pretty good life. Hold no power. If the resurrection didn't happen, if his substitutionary, then his substitutionary death for our sins would be meaningless. It would be like, have you ever seen the movie Spartacus, where they come at the end and Spartacus is hanging on a cross. You know, they, they, they crucified those who, in the rebellion from, from Rome to Brindisi, every ten feet. And there's, there's Spartacus, the leader of this freedom revolt. And he's up on the cross dying. No power there. 
No power. But there is, if the resurrection is true in Jesus' Christ's crucifixion. He actually took the penalty for our sin. See, the resurrection gives the gospel its power, its effectiveness. Because in the resurrection, all the promises are yes in Christ. Our faith is effectual. Our sins forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ in our account. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Death is defeated. Satan's power is broken. And we are guaranteed to live with God in paradise forever and ever. Amen. Right? In 1922, Howard Carter made what is probably the greatest archaeological discovery in history. He found the ancient tomb of the pharaoh known as Tutankhamun or King Tut. What made King Tutankhamun's tomb so significant was not because it was the only tomb discovered. They had discovered scores of tombs before. Nor was it significant because it was the biggest one discovered. Other kings had many more chambers. What made King Tutankhamun's tomb so significant was that unlike all the other tombs they had found, where grave robbers had emptied it, this one was untouched. It was full of priceless artifacts. And, most significantly, King Tut's body was still there. It took eight years to remove and document all the contents of the tomb. The mummified remains and, and, the, and the gold circled the globe for years. I don't know, maybe some of you went and stood in the long lines to see that. The whole world celebrated because the tomb was not empty. As Christians, we celebrate because the tomb was empty. When those two women went to the tomb that Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, they expected to find the body. They expected to find the body. But instead, the angel said, he's not here. He's risen. The world will always celebrate full tombs. We celebrate an empty one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will change us by it. Help us, Lord, to live more holy lives, more dedicated lives. Help us to hate the sin that so easily traps and entangles us. And help us to love your law in obeying you and pleasing you. In Jesus' name, amen.